All right. I brought two Bibles, one with the answers, and um, I don't know what the questions are yet. So um, the green one has, has a uh, concordance, so if I get totally lost, I can use that. Uh, but I will be use the Pew Bible, so if you want to follow along when we find our scriptures, you'll be able to use the ones that are located in the pockets in front of you. And now there's only one question, which is, what questions am I answering? Did any get received during the offering? I should turn around and see. Okay. All right. I don't see any there. Okay. Did anyone? Okay. Here's one coming up. All right. The choreography always defeats me in these things. So, uh, so any others? Here's some more coming up. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I'll give you an opportunity if you come up with a question later on. Uh, then um, we'll work from there. All right. So, um, family members last. Okay. So the first one. Um, first question. Matthew six one concerning almsgiving. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Okay. So uh, Matthew six one. So. Uh, our pew Bibles have two sections, uh, a front and a back, and they start numbering again toward the back. So this will be on page, uh, page five of the back section, so about here. All right. So I'm going to read. This is from the middle of the, um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus switches from kind of talking about the big picture to giving some practical applications of what he's just talked about in chapter 5. He says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So this is the first of several several teachings that Jesus gives in this chapter. I, I want you to, we, we're not going to read all of them, but um, if you've got the Bible in front of you, if you look at it, uh, my Bible, the Pew Bible, has headings. It says, Concerning almsgiving, Concerning prayer, and then on page six, concerning fasting, um, and then it goes on treasures and so forth. Um, so ignoring the verse numbers and the chapter divisions, but just kind of looking at the way that they've said this section deals with this, this section deals with that. Jesus is giving three examples of what uh, personal piety looked like back in the time of, of Christ. People gave alms, uh, people prayed, and... Um, People fasted. Those were kind of the, the three ways that people lived out their faith. And he talks about each one in turn. So he gives the same advice for each one. He says, he says um, each one talks about how you can be rewarded by God. So we're going to look specifically at the one on almsgiving. So almsgiving. Almsgiving is giving money to the poor, giving support of any kind to the poor. And um, he says, be careful how you do that. Um, not to be seen by others. And um, he goes on in verse 2, he says, so whenever you give alms, notice he says whenever. He doesn't say if. He assumes that, that people want to practice their piety. So he says, he says, so when you give alms, here's how you can do it effectively. He says, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus says the point is not 
to get praised by people. The word for hypocrite here is the word for an actor. And he's saying is if what you want is the applause of the crowd, you know, the smell of grease paint and the, the applause of the crowd, you have gotten it. You got what you wanted. Who, who can argue with that? You said, I want everybody to see what a wonderful person I am. They've now seen what a wonderful person you are. That's done. But he says, if you want the effects of practicing piety, if you want to build and deepen your relationship with God, don't be playing this out as a little, as a little um, act before people. He says, he says, give alms, but he says, don't do it for applause. He says, do it for God and for the purpose God has in mind to help the person who is, who is um, in need. So he says, whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet. It's hard to believe people did that, um, but uh, this is one of the ways that, that Christians um, have changed the world. We really cannot get our head into the place that, um, that people were at in the first century. There was a, a very much an honor culture, and the idea was when you did something, you, you, uh, gave, you, you initiated games, right? You're going to give bread and circuses to the masses. The whole point was so that they would praise you, that they would say, oh, I love, you know, Flavius Maximus. He built this wonderful arena and we get to go watch the lions or whatever. Right. You gave praise to the person who was your benefactor. And with this teaching, Jesus began to change the world. And nowadays, you know, we still label our stadiums, you know, the you know bank of whatever trust fiduciary bank stadium. Right. We, we still put that. But you're not expected to go in and say, oh, thank goodness for whatever bank. I'm so glad that they exist. We just kind of say, well, they're, they're just advertising. We don't have this idea. We owe them anything in return. So uh, Jesus began to change the world with this specific teaching right here, saying, don't do it for the applause of people. Do it because you are trying to align yourself with God's purposes in the world. All right. So I hope that that's helpful. Um, yeah. All right. All right, next one. A lot of Christians take your body as God's temple to mean that they should take care of their body. While there are some no-brainer things people can do for their health, like not smoking and stuff like that. Sorry, smokers. <laughs> you, just got, you just got slammed. All right. Um, uh, um, uh, taking care of your health, taking care of your health, your best, can be really time-consuming and potentially squish out more important tasks. Where do you draw the line? Okay, so um, your body is God's temple. And I'm thinking that's in 1 Corinthians, but does anyone know? Uh, temple, temple, temple. Let me, let me find a, an actual text, because I know that that is a biblical phrase. So let's, uh, let's look at it and see what it teaches us. So how many have heard that, you know, people have lectured you or, or frowned at you and said your body was a temple, just out of curiosity. So, so they saw you reaching for that donut or something like that. Um, I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'll get to the T's here eventually. There's a lot of S's in the Bible. All right. Um, Thank you. All right. <laughs> All right, Caroline. She didn't even use a concordance. So 169. So 
chapter 6, verse 12. Thank you. I'm sorry, what? Verse 19. Okay, so, all right, so we're on... All right, somebody shout it out just one more time. I give us of what book? First Corinthians six. So that is going to be on page one sixty nine, and we're going to look at uh, verse nineteen. Okay. All right. So um, okay, what is the context? Okay, the context is um, uh, chapter chapter six. Uh, how to how to slice this up? Well, let's just look at the specific verse. Paul says, "Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body." Now, the context that Paul is using this is not the context of somebody smoking or eating donuts, but rather somebody um, going to a temple prostitute uh, and having sex there, and saying, up in verse twelve, "All things are lawful to me." Paul has said that we're not saved by our obedience to the law. Paul used to tell the Corinthians that when he lived in that town. He said, Jesus has already saved you, that you're not going to get into heaven or fail to get into heaven because of what you do. He says that all things are lawful to you. And so they quote that back to him, that whoever this question came from for Paul, all things are lawful to me, Paul. And he says, yes, but not all things are beneficial. They quote um, he quotes them again, all things are lawful for me, but he says, I will not be dominated by anything. Um, uh, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food, but he says, <clears throat> he says, these things are fading away. God will destroy both. That, that um, uh, if you make an idol out of your body, any part of your body, your stomach, uh, sex, uh, um, uh, any other kind of bodily pleasure, then you're you're investing in a sinking asset. I mean, a, a fading asset. It's not going to it's not going to last for eternity. He says your body has to be renewed by God. So he says he says don't be dominated by the physical pl- pleasures. So then he gets down to the bottom and he says uh, shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits out, is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body yourself. Um, he says that that sex is uniquely different, and and we know that we know that. There's, there's, what is the difference between being sexually assaulted and being physically assaulted? We just know that there is a huge difference. Sex is, is intrinsically different. And so he says, he says, shun fornication. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Um, and so I think Paul's talking about something that's very deep here. He's saying, he's saying that we have, we're people, we have uh, a physical body, and there are things that are that are pleasurable in in this world. But he's saying those are gifts from God, but don't be dominated by them. He says you're, it's not going to affect whether you get into heaven or not if you eat that donut. Okay, he says. But on the other hand, um, it may affect how soon you get into heaven. <laughs> right? And and maybe God's got something He wants you to do in the meantime. And so he says, if you're dominated by something other than God's will for your life, then um, you're not you're not being what God is calling you to be. So um, uh, so um, where do you draw the line? So now let's assume that um, that uh, there's things you can do for your health um, that can be really time consuming and potentially squish out more important tasks. All right. 
so I can I I could point to a long trail of uh, people whose uh, lives have been broken, whose families and relationships have been broken, because they said, "What I do is important work of God, and therefore it's more important than anything else I do. It's more important than taking care of my own health. It's more important than my relationship. It's more important than all kinds of things." They're called pastors. Okay, this is the thing that they teach us is self-care. Because when you're doing the Lord's work, what could possibly be more important? So uh, there are any number of pastors who have flamed out, who burn out, because they have said, what I'm doing is so important. And the answer is, realize you're not God. That, yes, um, that uh, um, there, there are things that are important. Paul says, taking care of your body is important. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But he says... Don't assume that you're God. Don't assume you can just kind of uh, pour out without ever taking time to refresh yourself. Jesus specifically said, uh, he affirmed the idea of Sabbath. Uh, Jesus slept, remember? Jesus slept when all the uh, uh, um, disciples were saying, if we don't keep rowing, the boat's going to sink, right? Or we'll never get to the other side, or whatever they were thinking. Jesus was in the back curled up on a cushion. Jesus knew that he lived in a real body, and it had real needs. Jesus ate real food. And if Jesus can do it, so can you. So don't, don't think that somehow you've, you've become this uh, Star Trek energy being because, because you know, the, body, the, the Holy Spirit lives in the temple that is your body. Um, don't think that you are exempt from normal human reality. So I would say uh, draw the line very much in terms of some humility, recognizing God created Sabbath and Jesus slept. So um, if Jesus had had a pair of running shoes, maybe he would have jogged. I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what Jesus needed to do to stay healthy, but, um, but uh, don't assume that you have some kind of a higher calling that, that enables you to neglect your body, to neglect your relationships, to ne- neglect the things that are important. So, so yes, this is true, but you're still human. All right. Uh, next one. All right, Hebrews 4. <clears throat> I've heard people quote verse 12, so let's find Hebrews 4. All right, it's going to be toward the back. It's on page 2. Somebody's going to beat me there. So page 220, again in the back section. So we're looking at Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. So let me just read them, and then I'll read the question. Okay. All right, 12 and 13, yeah. Okay, indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from soul, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the hearts and intentions of the heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. So, uh some of you were here a couple of weeks ago. We had, uh, we're reading the, in, in our regular time, we're, we're looking at the book of Revelation. And you may remember this image of Jesus with the, with the sword coming out of his mouth. And, uh, so, um, uh, here is, here is that same image, this idea that the Word of God is living and active, a, a two-edged sword. Alright, so the quote. People quote verse 12, implying the Word of God in this verse refers to the Bible. But if that is the case, then verse 13 make as much sense. What is the word of God in this context? So verse 13 says, before him no creature is hidden. Okay. 
but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. All right. So, yes, all right. So verse 12 says the word of God is living and active. It says it does this. It, it uh, divides joint from marrow, um, soul from spirit. It's able to judge the intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden. Um, so there may be something, you know, this is where, uh, this, is, this is why you pay me the big bucks, because I can go get out my Greek dictionary and find it in the Greek text and see there's a chance that the pronoun it um, or the pronoun him makes a difference. I don't think so. I don't remember whether, we're, whether the word of God is a, um, is a uh, what the grammatical gender is. So there's a chance you may get a hint, but I, I generally trust the, um, the translators here. I used to um, study in the library at Princeton Seminary, and Bruce Metzger was in his late 80s or early 90s. Um, he's, he's subsequently um, gone to the Lord, but he would walk into the library and read the newspaper, and Bruce Metzger um, knew more about Greek than um, I'll know in a thousand lifetimes. So, um, so I trust his translation work here in Hebrews. So I don't think that that's going to bias anything, but it's saying the Word of God is living. So it's telling us right up front, the word of God is someone, not something. But then it goes on and tells us what this living thing, the word of God does. It, it uh, pierces, it, uh, it uh, divides, it judges, and then before him all the creature is hidden. So um, the word of God is uh, another name for Jesus. Let's, let's turn to J- um, John 1. John 1 is um, on page 91. And John begins famously this little poem that begins his, his account of the gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and so forth. So uh, John says, The Word of God is Jesus. He's going to tell the rest of the 21 chapters that follow this are going to be all about Jesus and what Jesus does. But he's, he says, to understand who Jesus is, you have to understand that there is the Word of God, this expressive idea of God. What, what does God have to say? And that is Jesus. That Jesus is not just a thought, not just a speech balloon that comes out of God, but it is living. And as the writer of Hebrews said, it's living and active like a two-edged sword. John is saying the same thing, and he We'll now go on to, to do that in the gospel. But we believe that Jesus is the message that God intends to convey to the world. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament. They say, well, there's a God of wrath and destruction. There's earthquakes. There's lightning. There's all that, that scary stuff, you know, floods and, you know, acts of God, right, in, in the old part of the Bible. And then if you make it all the way to the very end and you get to the book of Revelation, as we're finding out, there's some pretty weird stuff there. So we get this idea that there's a, a, a mean, angry God who's going to get you. He's going to zap you. You know, People say, well, I can't go to church because you know, I'd be struck by lightning when I walked in the door or whatever. There's this idea that God is somehow vengeful and looking for a reason to, uh, not, not a reason, but an opportunity to smite you. And what Christianity believes is that Jesus expresses how God wants to communicate who he is. That God says, here's what you need to know about me. I love you. I know you're a terrible sinner, 
but I love you and I'm going to die for you. That God doesn't say, I know you're a terrible sinner and I hate you and I'm going to smite you. Instead, what Jesus communicates is, I know you're a terrible sinner, but I love you and I'm going to die for you. I want to fix everything that's broken. I want to, I want to heal everything in you that hurts. I want to make you perfect because I love you that much. So scripture says that is what God is really like. Not because we've somehow, you know, reread the part about the flood or whatever and tried to get some new meaning out of it, but because Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the message that God has for the world. All right. Um, let me see. Does that answer the question about? All right. Yeah. So um, if. All right. So is he the Bible? Well, no, Jesus is not the Bible. Jesus is um, Jesus is the one that the Bible bears witness to. Uh, sometimes people say that the Bible is the word of God written and Jesus is the living word of God. So they make that distinction. Uh, but I would say the Bible is the testimony about Jesus, that we talk about the, the, old, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that both of them refer to what God has to say about Jesus, who in turn tells us what we need to know about, about God. All right. So those, this, this is the first time I've talked so quickly. Um, we have time for, uh, there's another one. Okay, somebody's waving it here. All right. All right, and this will be our last one, so. All right. All right, 1 John four nineteen and 20. 1 John, again, toward the very back, just in front of Revelation. 1 John 4, 19 and 20. So this is on page 241, toward the very back. All right, I'm going to read the whole paragraph, but then we'll zero in on 19. All right, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. This command we have from them is this. Those who love God must also love their brothers and sisters also. All right. So, um, so uh, we love because he first loved us. And then those who say, I love God, but hate their brothers and sisters. And the Bible says, if that's you, you're a liar. You can't do both. So um, if you've got a problem with that, if you think, oh, no, but I really do love God, and yes, I really do hate my brothers and sisters, then take that up with First uh, John. So, um, so the, the reason, he even gives a reason. He says, he says anybody can love God, right? Because I've built up a God in my mind, a God who likes me, who approves of all the things I do, right? who knows I'm a hater and likes me anyway, okay? He approves of all the way I behave, um, even though I'm a hater. And uh, it says, there's no, way to, there's no way to confirm whether you're loving a real God or an idol then. 
Have you just built up an idol in your mind then? So he says, he says, the proof of loving God is that first you have to love people. That if you can't love the, the people who bear the image of God, if you can't love people who bear the image of God, how could you possibly believe that you love the real God, the invisible, the unseen God? So he says, this is kind of like a, a litmus test or a, um, uh, a canary in the coal mine. That by loving, by loving um, people who bear the image of God, that's a good way of knowing whether you're on the right track, loving the invisible God. So, so he says, if you think you can love God, but you're failing this, this obvious uh, uh, worldly test, then um, you're fooling yourself. So um, he says, uh, brother or sister whom you've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Um, the commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must also love their brothers and sisters also. Let me, um, and, and we'll wrap up with this. So turn back to John again. Uh, John chapter 13. This is a, a verse we often hear around the time of Easter on Maundy Thursday. Um, but uh, I think it's really the center of what Jesus was all about. And really we can't study it enough. So I'm going to ask you to turn to page 108 uh, because John... Um, we don't know for sure if it was the same John, First John, and John. Um, are they the same author? Uh, traditionally, they are. Uh, so r- turn to page 108 and um, look at verse 34 and 35. It says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should also love one another. That's where we get the, the words for Maundy Thursday. Uh, a new commandment is a, is a new mandate, a new commandment. Uh, Novum, uh, I can't do it again, it's in Latin, uh, um, mandatum novum. And people couldn't say that any more than I can, so it became Maundy. So Maundy Thursday was the New Commandment Thursday. But Jesus says, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you have a really big church building. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you have a lot of scripture memory. By this people will know if you're my disciples, if you give generously to support the church. By this People will know that you're my disciples if you act all holy at work. Right? No. He says, the, the signature identification for the followers of Jesus Christ is do you love each other? And, you know, I think the church has a lot to, to, to work on in this area. I think, you know, we say, well, how come people don't come to church? Who can blame them? I mean, a lot of churches are just ugly places. You know, how many of you have ever been in a church that's had a split? Nobody here has ever been in a church split. How many of you have ever gotten rid of a pastor um, because the pastor wasn't working out? Okay. All you Jew Lake people, you know who I'm thinking of. If you were here in the 90s. All right. Okay. I've read the minutes. Okay. <laughs> so apparently you're, you're, it slipped your mind, which is a good thing. Um, Churches can be ugly places. And Jesus says, you have to love, you have to love each other. You know, one of the things, people come to church and they don't love each other. I mean, it's not that they dislike each other. They're friendly, right? But is the church a place where if the wheels come off at 2 a.m., you have somebody at this church who will drop everything and come over and help you? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. The church should be a community of people who love each other, that your best friends, not necessarily the ones you see the most, but the ones who care the most about you should be the people in your church family. That 
By this, people will know. The, Jesus, Jesus had in mind the idea that people outside the church would look at us and they would say, you know what, I don't buy any of that. You know, seven days of creation, that's a load of malarkey. Okay, um, you know, uh, whatever, the flood, whatever, whatever it is people have got, but they say, you know what, I wish I had people who cared for me the way that they care for one another. That was Jesus' marketing plan for the church. He said, there's going to be stuff in here that people will not understand and will reject. But what they cannot overcome is the example of people who have sacrificial love for one another, who love each other the way I have loved you. Jesus challenges every church to be that kind of a community, love each other so much that people on the outside say, I've still got reservations. I'm not sure if I buy all that stuff. But look at the way they love each other. The Roman, um, the Roman emperor, um, Julian the Apostate, he was trying, after Christianity kind of took over Rome, he was trying to do a back to, back to the ways of our ancestors campaign, trying to get people to go back to pagan worship. And he said that. He said, people can see that Christians love one another. He says, they know that pagans don't love one another. And he said, everybody, everybody can see and they look at them and they say, look how they love one another. That is what the church is called to be. And it's my prayer that that's what we will be. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, we give you thanks for the scriptures, the, uh, the word written, and the testimony they bear to Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you put your image in the, the most irritating and, and ugliest people around us, the ones who seem to be so lost and so broken, so that we can... Um, love them and use that as a gauge to know whether we really love you or if we love some idol that we've constructed in our own minds. Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to realize we're, we're mortal, we're human, we need rest, we need bodies that work, we need to do the things that, that we have to do to take care of them, but not just our bodies, but um, our relationships, that, that we accept our mortality and our uh, limitations the way Jesus did when he walked among us. And Lord, I pray that you would help this church to be known not for the soundness of its doctrine or the, the uh, wonders of its building, but by the fact that we love one another, that people um, in this community uh, can look to this congregation and say, look how they love each other. I pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.